Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-423 of the Run Run Live podcast. For those of you who maybe got a new device for podcast listening over the holidays and are now exploring new content, well, welcome to our tribe. Or maybe you found us because you're embarking on a New Year's wellness campaign of some sort, and, you know, that led you to us. Welcome. And to my old friends, welcome. Welcome to the new year, a new year. Now, if you want to know more, there are 12 years worth of episodes on our website with the corresponding blog posts. It's runrunlib.com. And the site is searchable. If there's a particular topic, you want to find out if there's a, a post about that, you can find it. And there's an index page that lists all the episodes in one place, like, uh, you know, if you're old enough, you remember phone books, kind of like that. You can see it all listed in one place and click on something if the title interests you. And also, as a Run Run Live member, every year we have a gathering in northern Idaho at the summer solstice at Camp Watafuki. And if you'd like to join us, that's fine. We get naked, paint ourselves blue take peyote and dance around the fire, a shamanistic jig to the earth goddess. But that's another story. Today, I have a great interview with Anne Audain. She connected to me on Facebook, and when I started reading her bio, I was a bit ashamed to have never met her before. She competed in the 70s and 80s at a very high level as part of that great diaspora of New Zealand runners. She has a great story, a real hero's journey. You're going to love the stories. It's a great interview. And if you know someone that I should be interviewing, let me know. The rule is, if there is a rule, that it's got to be something interesting, right? Something you're curious about, something you want to learn more about. Famous, that's not a requirement. I tend to shy away from famous because they tend to be jaded with interviews and they give you that pre-recorded shtick. I've always liked the person in the trenches interviews better because they're relatable and applicable to what we're doing in our tribe. In section one, I'm going to talk about training your dog to run with you. 
because I have a dog. I am currently training to run with me. And I have also had multiple people ask me about this. So timing is right. In section two, we're going to do some tracking in the New England snow. And here we are. The first podcast of 2020, a new year, a new decade. And you can thank the Romans for this fascination with increments of 10. And it's not hard to see how they came up with this system based on you got five fingers in each hand, you got two hands, it's 10. There you go. But before the Greeks, before the Romans, before they counted on their fingers, There were other earlier cultures that counted on their fingers and the knuckles of their fingers to come up with a 12-based system. And that still lingers in our world as dozens and grosses. So I've started training again. Yay! I don't have anything super specific on the calendar yet, but it feels good to start getting stronger again after taking a break. For the holiday season, I put on about 10 pounds, but I'm not worried about that. It kind of syncs well with the periodicity of my training cycles. Now, in the beginning of the cycle, what we're focusing on is strength and aerobic fitness. There's no no pace work or speed work or specific goal-based workouts. So I can carry a couple extra pounds. And as long as I feel healthy and I'm eating clean, it's all good. And it's one less thing to stress about. And I find that the weight will take care of itself as the training intensifies closer to the goal event. And it's counterproductive, really, to stress out about that too early in a cycle. And what are my events and plans? Well, you just have to wait till the outro of this show to hear that. But it's a new year. It's a time of rebirth. And I usually don't go too deeply into my personal stuff. But this story fits well with the New Year theme. So I start a new job next week, and I'm excited and apprehensive. I'm looking forward to it. It's a bit of a change for me. It's a bigger company as opposed to the startups I've been working with for the past couple decades. And it's also a step back from management and a step back from direct sales. And I'm quite proud of myself for making this change relatively proactively I mean, I really did. I sat down with myself and asked, what do I really want to do right now? And I heard myself, whatever that inner voice is, say, hey, right, you've got an opportunity to change. Don't let your ego or your environment drive the bus. Make a proactive change because you're a different person than you were 15 years ago. And my point is, and I share this with you because we are all changing all the time regardless of our position, our circumstance, or our maturity. This is part of the journey. And we tend to think in terms of goals this time of year. I mean, what are goals? Goals are really nothing but destinations. And in this world of change, there are no real destinations. Those goals are only there as waypoints to guide your journey, to keep you from running in circles. Instead of goals, why not think in terms of virtues this year? Those things that are the demonstration of you as your best self. And when I thought about this, I didn't put much thought into it. 
not because it's not important, but because they just came to me quickly. As soon as I asked the question, what are the virtues you want to cultivate this year? So I'm going to focus on three things this year, gratitude, kindness, and empathy. And as I move into the year, this will give me that beginner's mind that I need to enable me to work with change. So I ask you, my friends, old and new, what are the virtues you need to cultivate this year? And how will those enliven your training, your health, your career, and your relationships with others? Think about that. New year, new changes, new virtuous you. On with the show! It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Training your dog for running. Practice, discipline, consistency, partnership. I swear I've written a post on how to run with your dog before, but I can't find it. Either my mind is filling in the blanks where it needs to, or this post got lost in one of those internet black holes. You know, 20 plus years into my running journey, 15 plus years into writing about it, and 12 plus years talking about it on the podcast have created so much miscellany that it's hard to find the stuff you're looking for sometimes. I need a good cleaning. That's what I need. A bit like looking for that thing you know you have that you just saw someplace really obvious in your house. And when you saw it, you thought to yourself, huh, that's where that is. But now, for the life of you, you can't put your hands on it? Yeah, a bit like that. So I have a puppy that I'm training. I've been thinking about this topic quite a bit. Then this week, someone asked me about it. A couple people asked me about it. And I said to myself, myself, just go dust off that blog you wrote about this 10 years ago. And here we are. Apparently, there's no blog to dust off, so we start fresh, which is probably for the better anyhow. So let's start with your approach to training or parenting or leadership. How do you want to set up this relationship? What do you want this relationship between you and your dog to be like? Do you want the dog to do things because they're afraid of punishment? You know, sort of like the North Korean management model? Or... Do you want the dog to do things because they want to? So this is just like parenting or relationships or any other leadership situation where you want the behaviors to be intrinsically motivated, i.e. they want to do it. At the same time, and in the same vein, you still need to lead. You still need to have boundaries, and you still need to not put up with unacceptable behavior. I mean, dogs are pack animals. So if you let them think that they can be the alpha, you're in for a rough trip. You need to lead. You're the alpha. They will be much happier if they know their place in the pecking order. So watch your tonality, watch your body language, watch your actions, and make sure you're sending the right signals. So the good news is that dogs, in my experience, are way easier to get along with than humans. All right, so the next thing you need to understand and commit to is patience. This whole process of training a dog, like raising a child or any other relationship, is fraught with frustration. Have that expectation ahead of time and work with it. 
The path is never a straight line. You will have successes, you will have failures, and you just need to keep a positive attitude and laugh at yourself a lot. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you're training, right? If you go and train for a race, it's going to take you 14 weeks, and you're going to be training every day, minimum. Training the dog, it's going to be the same thing. So it doesn't happen overnight, especially with a puppy. They need time to learn. It can be frustratingly slow. Just like children, they're always testing the limits to see what they can get away with. So it's consistency and patience. That's the name of the game here. All right. All training is based on reward and punishment. Most modern trainers will avoid the punishment and weight the training towards rewards. It's all very easy, theoretically. B.F. Skinner taught pigeons how to play ping pong. When they do a desirable behavior, they get a reward. It's called operant conditioning. Right. So, as runners, we want to be able to run with our dogs. Most dogs love to run. Most dogs are great runners. My border collies are incredible athletes. I've seen ultra runners training with dachshunds and Jack Russells. I've seen mountain bikers who have their dogs along with them for rides. There's nothing that gives me more joy than sharing a long run in the woods with a dog. Dogs are built for running. Just use some common sense here. Understand that just like us, they need water, they need fuel, they have good days, they have bad days. It's typically not a great idea to run them hard on the roads or other hard surfaces for long distances. They don't have shoes. They are more susceptible to heat than we are. So once you're in tune with your four-legged running buddy, you should be able to tell when they're struggling or when they're uncomfortable. you got to pay attention. What are the most important things when running with the dog? If you're running off-leash, the most important thing is to have a recall. You need the dog to come when called. And this can be a matter of life and death to the dog. This is very important. You can't have it running into traffic or attacking people or engaging with wild animals. It's got to come when called. If you're running on leash, then the most important thing is to control the dog, control that pulling. Again, this can be potentially dangerous for both you and the dog. The basic thing here is to reward for the proper behavior. But you have to break it down into shades of proper behavior. Let's say you want the dog to come when called, sit, and then stay until released. That's not all one thing. That's a whole bunch of different things. And you need to deconstruct that and reward for the component behaviors. For example, reward the dog for looking at you when you call his name or stopping or just checking in once in a while. Whatever the behavior is that's on the path, to the entire set of behaviors, reward those. And you have to be fast with the reward. The reward has to align tightly in time with the behavior. If you miss it, let it go. Look for the next opportunity to reward a good behavior. So what's a reward? A reward is a treat, something tasty the dog likes. The tastier, the better. And yes, you need to have a pocket full of treats at all times. I have a fanny pack that I fill with treats for our walks to practice recalls. And I put a handful of treats in my running vest pocket for running practice. You have them with you at all times, so you can reward. You can practice. 
And you need to be consistent in your rewards, in your commands, your verbal commands, and your equipment. Every time you want the dog to do something, you have to use the same verbal command, like, Ollie, come here. Use the same hand gesture. And try to use the same pocket for the treat every time. Be consistent. Once they get it, you can throw in more generic commands, but meet them halfway. Dogs are way smarter than we think they are. They read your tonality. They read your body language. They read your emotions. So you have to try to be consistent. If you're going to act pissed off and expect the dog to come to you, they're not going to. Make it a game. They love games. Be consistent. So when leash training, have a designated leash for that training. The dog will associate that leash with on-leash activity and with the training, right? So all the things, all the parts add up to the same thing in the dog's mind. So I use a six-foot flat leash. I tie three knots in the leash, one at the point where I hold the leash if if I want the dog to heel or run, walk tight right at my side. That's one point because everybody's a different height, right? Every dog's a different height. So you have to tie this knot. The second is right up by the end of the leash under the leash loop, So you have something to grab up there, especially if the dog bolts. And the third is somewhere in the middle. So flat leashes are hard to grip, especially if you're wearing gloves, and you want to be able to get a grip. That's what the knots are for. And you might ask, why not use the loop on the leash or wrap the leash around your hand? You know, I do do this, but the caveat here is, the caution is that if it's a big dog or you're a small person and it bolts, do you really want to be tied to it? The knots are a happy medium. They allow you to get a grip without being full-on tied to the dog. So your commands for running off-leash, these are the commands you're going to practice. You're going to practice these every time you take the dog out. So when you're running off-leash, the commands you need are, number one is come. You say, Ollie, come. And the dog comes to you and gets a treat. So you want to practice this a lot. It takes a lot of work. So one thing to note is that if the dog won't come to you or won't come all the way to you, don't chase them. That's a game. That's a reward. So you're rewarding them for the wrong behavior. So instead, change direction. Start walking in the other direction or start walking backwards or just ignore them. Try not to repeat the command. Reward what you can, what positive behavior you can until they get it, right? And they won't get it every time. The next command you need is sit and down. You can use these interchangeably. Down is lay down. Sit is sit, right? So after the dog comes and gets really good at coming to you, you show them the treat, which is what they're expecting. And the next progression is to get them to sit or to lay down before you give them the treat. And then the next progression is stay or wait. I use stay. So after they sit or lay down, they're still looking at the treat. You need them to stay put until you release them. And the release word is okay. So you, so you give them the treat and you say okay and you swing your arm out onto the trail. Let them go. So this is, this is it, right? This is the sequence. Come, sit, stay, okay. Right? You'd repeat that over and over and over again. So a final set of behavior that you need to practice when you're running with a dog is how to cross roads. And the behavior you want 
is the dog to stop before you get to the road and let you put on a leash and wait to be released before you cross the road. This can save the dog's life. In practice, how do you train this? It starts with a modified come command. You say, Ali come leash. And as they're learning to do this, you do this well before you actually get to the road crossing, maybe a couple hundred feet before you get to the actual crossing. So, and you want to do it in the same place if it's a trail that you frequent, same place on the trail every time. And they'll associate that place with a leashing spot and they'll eventually stop there and wait to be leashed without you even saying anything. Uh, One note is that I find that the dog understands the whole leashing thing, but really doesn't want to sit. He's like, hey, you can put the leash on, but why are we sitting? So if the dog's giving you a hard time about sitting, walk them backwards into a sit. And that's easier than trying to push their bum down, right? You just walk them backwards and that naturally causes them to sit. Next, so when you, so you got them to sit, you got them on the leash, right? You go to the actual road crossing right before you cross the road and you do a full sit, stay, and you can say stop. You use the stop signal with your hand and you say sit, stay, and you hold the dog there. And it's very important not to flinch with your body language, right? Because they're watching you. You want them to only move on the verbal command. And when the coast is clear, you give the release, okay, and then you run across the road. On the other side of the road, you use the exact same sequence to unleash once you have enough distance between you and the road so there's no risks. So you say, okay, stop, right? Sit, leash. You take the leash off. You say, stay, and then okay, and let them run away. So now let's talk a little bit about running or walking on leash. Now, this takes a lot of time and training. And let's face it, walking or running on a slack leash, this runs counter to everything your poor puppy wants to do in life. They want to run. They want to chase. They want to frolic and sniff horse poo. They want to get where they're going as fast as possible. And all you want to do is walk? Boring. So your younger dogs just aren't going to be good at walking on the leash, so don't try to force it. It's it's good if you can do some activities ahead of time to let them burn off some energy first before you go into the, the run or the walk on the leash. Uh, you have to really practice some patience for the first few minutes of this walk or this run, and they get much better at this as they get older. But the goal is for them to give you some slack in the leash and stay on one side. And I'm not talking about strict healing. I'm talking about just being a good citizen and not pulling you like an Iditarod sled dog on speed. So the commands are the same, whether you're walking or running. And it's a physical signal and a verbal command. So you you have the leash in your hand and you give it a little pop, right? Just to get their attention. And you say, easy. So they're naturally going to go to the end of the leash and start pulling. And they're going to do this again and again. And you are going to repeat again and again. Pop, easy. You'll have to do this 10,000 times, so have patience. And try to watch and reward any micro moments where they may look at you and give you a little slack with a good dog, smart dog, or even a treat if you can get to it in time. 
The dog knows how long the leash is and will continue to test you. If it gets unbearable, if they just won't do any, you know, they're dragging you, then stop. Do a sit-stay, or you can keep changing directions and going in the other direction. So eventually the dog will understand that they're not getting there any faster by pulling. Uh, Again, a note here is that I use a flat collar and a flat leash with the knots, as I described above for this. So you grab the knot and you give it a little pop. Not hard enough to hurt them, just hard enough to get their attention. That gives them the signal that they got to back off on the pulling. So retractable leashes, you know, those leashes that retract automatically. So those aren't good for this because they're basically designed to teach the dog that it's okay to pull and be undisciplined. So don't train with those. I also don't train with the choke collars, and I have never used those head leaders, but I hear they're good for keeping a dog from pulling. I just use a regular flat collar, regular flat leash. So you're going to have situations out on the trail, when you're walking, when you're running on leash, where you're going to pass another dog, another human, a dead animal. And so in this case, you want to pull that dog close on the leash into the heel position. And this is the lower knot on the leash for me, right? And it's on the side, right on your hip, right next to you, and away from the distraction, on the side opposite the distraction. And the command here is leave it. So you go, easy, leave it, good boy, right? A variation of this training, one of the things you might try when the dog gets tired or, you know, the dog is is sick of working with you, is to let go of the leash, but don't detach it. Let the dog drag the leash. And this is a nice in-between because it allows the dog to relax a bit and run around a little bit, but the dog still knows that they're under your control and you can practice your recalls this way. So that's it, right? Easy, leave it 10,000 times, and eventually you will come to some sort of agreement. It may not be perfect, but it'll make for, uh, it'll impress your friends when your dog has control. And it's really just consistency and patience. Trying to catch the dog doing something right and reward it enough times until it becomes a habit. And don't be too hard on the dog or on yourself for that matter. We all know it takes time to burn in new habits to train new skills. And now for today's featured interview. And Dane, I just finished watching your movie on YouTube. Well, thanks. Yes, it's finally got up there. Uh, I really love that uh, Commonwealth Games uh, 3K that they used sort of as the uh, story metaphor, and they put it at the end. The the finish of that was great when the Canadian tried to make a move on you in the last quarter mile, and you just powered uh-huh. away from her. That, that was an amazing race. So I know it was a long time ago, but it's very thrilling. Well, thank you. It was a long time ago, and that race I became New Zealand's first female track gold medalist, and to this day I'm New Zealand's only female track gold medalist still. <laughs> Really? 37 years later. (laughs) Really, with all the great runners in New Zealand and the running culture there, you're the only gold medalist? Yes, on the track, yes. Wow, yeah, because I obviously know from my marathon experience, we all follow the Lydiard training programs and all that kind of thing. New Zealand's got this great culture for a relatively small Commonwealth country. It's got this great running culture. Yes, it does. And I think what actually happened was there's certainly been female runners that have broken my New Zealand records, like Kim Smith 
And there's a young girl this year at the World Championships that did very well in the five and 10,000 meters um, running faster than I ever ran. But I think what happens now is they don't choose to kind of look at the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics as such a big deal and they go other places. They've gone more towards the road racing. Right. Yeah, that's where the money is, right? Which is a good segue. So you are uh, the world's first professional female uh, distance runner, right? That's what you say. Yes, we've had no one dispute that. And how that came about was that I came to the United States in 1981 to see if I could further my running career because I had heard that the United States was opening up the road racing and the longer distances for women because up until 1981 or the 1980 Olympics, the longest distance in the Olympic Games for women was the 1,500 meters. And so I had had some of my male compatriots like Rod Dixon and Dick Quacks and John Walker all say that I would be a much better runner or I'd have more success if I got the chance to run the middle distances. And so I packed up and came here to the States when I was 25 years old to take a chance at running road racing. And in June of 1981, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, put up prize money openly for a road race in Portland, Oregon to encourage the sport to go pro. And so I turned up to that race and hoping to get fifth or sixth, maybe to earn enough money to stay living in the United States because I was running out of money. But I ended up winning the race and winning $10,000 and was in a lot of trouble for that. Immediately got a lifetime ban from the sport. I was in trouble with immigration because I was only here on a visitor's visa and you're not allowed to earn money on a visitor's visa. And the IRS, you suddenly were in trouble with the tax laws and all sorts of things like that. Well, that was the end of June. That was June 27th of 1981, I believe. And three days later, I flew to Atlanta, Georgia for the Peachtree Road Race and sat down with with a guy. Yes, Jeff Galloway, who was really instrumental in telling me about everything that was happening. And he had put me in touch with a man by the name of Cree Kelly. And Cree was helping out a lot of us, particularly we needed legal help. And he sat down with a gal that worked in the running department of Nike. Her name was Charlotte Richardson. And we sat down and we hammered out a little Nike contract on a paper napkin in an ice cream (laughs) thing on on Peachtree Boulevard. And so that was around the end of June of 1981. And it was for $400 a month and obviously all my shoes and clothing. So that's why I kind of claim that I had to be the first one because it was only three days after turning professional and after accepting the money. Yeah, and I mean, in 1981, for a school teacher from New Zealand, that probably wasn't a bad amount of money, 400 bucks a month, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and that's very true. I mean, the $10,000 US dollars was more than my yearly teaching um, amount in New Zealand. And then once again, getting $400, I mean, it was just wonderful. And the other side that was really great was that all the race directors in the United States ignored my ban. So I was still able to run the rest of 1981, even though internationally with the Federation I was a banned athlete and the New Zealand Athletic Federation I was a banned athlete. American race directors ignored that. And so I ended up at the end of 1981 with $22,000 in prize money plus that little Nike contract. So I thought I was really rich. Yeah. (laughs) 
So looking back on this from our vantage point now, you know, back, I was alive then, right? I was running cross country in high school then. But looking back on it, it's just amazing how medieval it all seems, isn't it? (laughs) I know. And I mean, the sad part is, is that, I mean, I had a great time in my 11 years that I raced the road racing circuit and I did just fine. But it's interesting because of all the money that is in sport these days, the moment I mentioned that I was a professional runner and I ran for Nike, with all the current world that we know and the millions and millions of dollars that is out there, it's just assumed that I'm just a multi-multi-millionaire. And it's like, no, I earned a nice living, but no. (laughs) It wasn't the right generation. (laughs) But it was good because you probably would have done it anyhow, right? You would have run those races anyhow if you could have figured out a way to afford it. But, you know, the thing, when I look back at that time period, because I was running then too and I knew – the professionals then, people like Rod Dix, I didn't know him personally, but those were the you know, sort of the stars in the, the sport. It's amazing to me how many races you folks ran in a season. You'd race every weekend and you'd race hard and you'd do really well. Yeah. I mean, for me and Rod too, is that the New Zealand Athletic Federation forced us to come back to New Zealand for the New Zealand track season. And of course, the beauty of that was you got to avoid the American winter and you went back to New Zealand around November. But if we wanted to be in any New Zealand team like Commonwealth Games or Olympic or World Championship, the New Zealand Athletic Federation would not acknowledge anything we did in the United States. We had to come back to New Zealand and run a full track season there too. So we were doubling up. We were running the American road season, and then we were going back to New Zealand, particularly someone like me, and was having to run a full track uh, season uh, to be able to qualify in any, like, 3,000, 5,000, or 10,000 meters in world championships or Commonwealth Games or Olympic Games. So I was racing year-round. Yeah, and you never broke down, never got injuries out of that? I didn't. I was really consistent, and I credit my second coach, John Davies, for all of that because, and I think I'll take some credit myself, that I wasn't greedy money-wise. And so we would sit down in January when when I was back in New Zealand, and we would plan my year race-wise. And we never deviated from that plan, no matter how much money I got offered to go race somewhere else. So I think, you know, as much as you said about racing every weekend, it did at some point look like that. But then I would take July where I would just hunker down and put a few more miles in and then race, you know, more in September and October and then take another break and go back to New Zealand and start up again. So there were the breaks, and I think that's what kept me healthy. And as I said, we worked out a plan, we stuck to the plan, and we never deviated from it. Yeah, and I was looking at some of the uh, film footage from you training in New Zealand, and it looks, first of all, it looks beautiful, right? But you were doing a yeah. lot of hills. A lot, yeah. It looked like you are doing a lot of long, slow stuff, slow for you, hills, dirt roads, open grass fields, just yeah. doing a lot of that yeah. sort of cross-country type training, which I'm sure made you a lot stronger when you transitioned to the road. Oh, yes, absolutely credit, and I think all of us would, uh, Rod, and I mean, all of us would would credit the New Zealand terrain for making us all so strong because there's no flat terrain in New Zealand. You're either going up or down. I mean, if you really want to try and just have a nice, easy run on the flat, you go round and round in circles in a park somewhere. 
Otherwise, and a lot of that footage in my film is on an island off the coast of Auckland City, which is actually where my grandmother had a cottage and where I spent a lot of time growing up. And I eventually bought a little cottage there myself. And I ran so many miles on that beautiful island, but you're looking at mile-long uphills and mile-long downhills and and running through the fields and with all the sheep and the cows. and, And it just made us so strong. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful place to run. I try to get in the woods a lot because a lot of times you'll get training plans and just by the nature of the training plans, it has to be done on the road or on the track. And you know, I would say don't just do that by default because you're going to be stronger if you spend some time off in the woods in your happy place, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I said, you, you, I couldn't have had a more beautiful training ground as you saw on in that footage. I mean, all you're doing is, is you're on an island and you're getting up on top of those hills and you're looking out totally surrounded by the ocean. I mean, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And I, I go back to New Zealand now and I sometimes go back to that island and I'm just not fit enough or strong enough to run that place anymore. <laughs> oh, plus, plus, and also we call it progress, but all those lovely dirt roads are now all sealed. So it probably would be pretty brutal to be doing that kind of mileage on those roads now that they're sealed versus the the nice dirt roads that we had. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, your story is not, we're starting at the end, but you really did have sort of the hero's journey where you got into it. Just You were lucky enough to be born into the New Zealand running culture and enabled you to start as a kid. But then you had some real challenges until you finally found the right mentor. And then you had some real successes after that. So it wasn't a straight line, which journeys never are. It was a squiggly line. So give me the 200 words or less on your hero's journey. (laughs) Well, I was given up for adoption by a teenage mom. And when I started to try and walk, my parents noticed that I wouldn't get up on the front part of my feet. And so I started to shuffle along on my heels. And the doctors really couldn't figure out what was wrong. And it took a while. You start to talk. You're trying to tell your parents what's wrong. And really what happened was it was a lot of pain for me to try and walk up on my toes. And I walked very pigeon-toed on the outside of my feet and on my heels. And the doctors said that that there was something wrong with the metatarsals. Uh, They had words for it, as you saw in the film. Fortunately, we found the surgeon that did this eventual surgery, and he's in the film describing what it was. And they waited until I was a teenager because they wanted my bones to be strong enough to be able to handle the surgery and recover from the surgery, which put me in a terrible spot as a young kid because I couldn't run around and play and and do all the things that all the other kids were doing. I mean, I was certainly active, and and I was happiest down on that island with my grandmother because I could get on the beach and the sand and and swim and and just be normal. But the hardest part was I couldn't wear normal shoes because I had these big bone growths that were too big for normal shoes. But New Zealand's, Auckland's climate was so mild that I could get around barefoot a lot. So it wasn't too bad. They told me that I had to wait. I had to be patient. And so at age 13, um, they put me in hospital and told my parents they were going to do the best they could. They couldn't promise miracles, but they were going to try and get me a much more efficient gait for me to move. And so they did the surgery and I ended up with plaster casts on both legs. And the genius of these doctors, which possibly would never get done in an American situation, 
they came up with a plan to force me to start using my feet up the front. And so on the bottom of the plaster cast, they put black uh, leather boots. And on the bottom of the leather boots was a wooden rocker, like a rocking horse, where to this yeah, day, yeah. I swear, uh, <laughs> to this day, I swear I was the first one with those fancy boots that they give out now. <laughs> but yeah. people can see the picture. It's the only one that I allowed my mother to take of me on my first day of high school. But the genius of what they did was, was those wooden rockers, as my feet were healing, as much as it caused me so much pain, it forced me forward on the front part of my feet where I had no choice but to go forward. So that when the plaster cast came off and I started going through rehab, I found it easier to run than I did to walk. None of us had any idea at that point that I would end up being a runner. But what they did was they forced me forward and just gave me a really great running style. So, right, yeah. yeah. Sort of a, so on, year, a perfect active recovery there, right? That's, uh, yes. that's great. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was genius of what they did. And, and after a year of rehab, I just told my mom and dad I wanted to be like all the neighborhood and school kids and join a track and field club. Yep, yep. And the rest is history, I guess, huh? The rest is history. I mean, and when I started, young girls were only allowed to run as far as a quarter mile. The beauty of New Zealand back then was that all our tracks were grass tracks, so I could still go barefoot. I still didn't have to put shoes on. And then cross country was about a mile of cross country, and I could still go barefoot. So I did that to begin yeah. with, and um, then I ran an 800-meter race. The other side, the system in New Zealand is that uh, the sports are administered by local club system, not by the schools. And so I didn't have all the rules and regulations of not being allowed to do things. And so at age 14, I was able to go and run against senior women in an 800 meters if that's what I chose to do. And so I did that and finished third in an Auckland championship at age 14. And that's when my first coach saw me and asked if I wanted, asked my parents if they wanted me to be coached. Yeah. And then you ended up in the Montreal Olympics eventually in that cycle. Yes, I actually qualified for Munich. I was 16 years old, and Munich was going to be the first games that they put the 1,500 meters in for women. And I actually qualified, ran the qualifying time, and New Zealand chose me to go to Munich. But because New Zealand's such a small country and cannot afford to send a big team, they pulled me from the team with about three weeks to go because they thought I was too young. And, you know, in hindsight, that's possibly very true. And then uh, at age 20, I was in my first year of school teaching. 20 years old, I had my first school teaching class, and I qualified to go to Montreal in the 800 and 1500 meters. And at that point, I was New Zealand record holder. And everybody thought I would go over there and do amazing things, but <laughs> I, I didn't even make it out of the heat, which was a real wake-up call, even though I ran my best times. But you get on the world stage coming from little old New Zealand, and you suddenly realize it's a big old world out there, and there's lots of talented athletes. So I had to kind yeah, of think about what... Especially in those, you know, they called it middle distance back then, but I think we'd call it shorter distance now, which doesn't seem to really play to your strength, right? Your That's strength seems exactly. to be more what we would call middle distance, 5K, 10K, that kind of yes. stuff, right? Yes. So, yes, and that, but that's all we knew, and so... That's the only opportunities we had. And, and, of course, in the 72, 76 Olympics, we were up against the Eastern Bloc and all the drug cheats of, of those countries. 
Mm-hmm. And so I always remember a Russian coach on the warm-up track coming up to me and saying how impressed he was, how fast I could run at such a young age, and if I came to Russia, they would make me better. And, of course, that's being <laughs> that's being well and truly proven right now with Russia not being allowed to even be in the Olympic Games. So they're still up to their old tricks. Yeah, yeah, yep, I remember that as well. What are you doing these days? It seems like you've got a sort of a, a program going to bring more inclusivity into sports and sort of celebrate women in athletics and that sort of thing. Well, I was through my years of competing here in the States, um, my base was Boise, Idaho. And when I retired in 1992, I had a choice to make whether I moved back to New Zealand or I stayed in the United States. And there was one part of me that I knew if I went back to New Zealand, I'd kind of live my life in a fishbowl. And I'm just not that type of person. And so I chose to stay in the United States where I had more anonymity. And in Boise, I got asked, Boise did not have a running race, a road race. And I got asked to bring one to Boise. And so at that point, and this is 1993, I chose to make it an all-women's 5K because back then you didn't get the older out-of-shape women to participate in the road races. Most of the road races were dominated by men and or elite women, but you weren't getting the over 40, 50, 60-year-old women to come out into a mixed event. So I chose to do a 5K for women of all shapes and sizes and abilities. That's how I promoted it. And I said, the only ones that will get timed are the ones that enter to get timed. Otherwise, the rest of you can just come out and run, walk, and stroll a 5K. And I just want you to understand that you can do it and if you do it three or four times a week, you'll be much more healthier. Well, we the first year was 1993, and we got 2,400 women turn up in Boise, Idaho. In 94, yeah. we doubled. In 95, we got 9,300. And by 1997, we had 17,000 women in that 5K, and we were the largest event for women in the nation. And then also in 97, I got married to a man from southern Indiana. So at that point, it's like, okay, how am I going to manage an event in Indiana? What am I going to do? So I maintained for about another three or four years, and then I turned it over to the major hospital in Idaho, and they took my staff, and they ran it. And for the next 10 years, it was still pretty successful, but on its 20th anniversary, it only had 8,000. And at that point, I went back to them and I just said, even though I'd been involved through those years, I just said, you know what, times have changed. Women are now making up 55, 60% of all United States road races. They don't care about an all-women's quite so much. Let's change it to a big community event. And so fast forward, it's now called Fit One Boise. And it's a 5K, 10K, and half marathon, and we're back up to 13,000, and it just embraces, once again, all shapes, sizes, and abilities, families. So it's really on the, the same mission. So next year will be its 28th year. Yeah, I got a little road race that I've been involved with for 28 years. It's going to be 28 years uh, this year, too. There you go. Well, well, where's yeah. yours? Uh, Groton, Massachusetts. Groton, okay, Groton Road Race. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, good for you. Yes. It's, I'm, Started it, it, in 1991. Yep. Okay. So mine was 93, so maybe I'm off. Maybe we're 27 years. So anyway, but yeah, it's nice to see them endure, and I'm really proud that I hung in there in Boise, and I'm still connected. I still go back to Boise and 
get involved in the community. So it's really good. I'm proud of that. Yeah, I think what keeps you passionate about it is when you see that you've made an impact in somebody's life, right? So at this point, after 30 years, you've impacted three generations of families, right? People who did things that they didn't think they could do and kids that took that into organized sports or took it into college. So you're actually making a change in the world, a positive change, right? Well, and also through the years that I competed, whenever I would go to communities to race, I would always go in early and go into all the schools and speak in all the schools. So I did that all through the 80s, and particularly out west, when I go back to Boise, I still, because Spokane, Bloomsday was a huge part of my career, and I still come across adults <laughs> that remember when I came to their schools in the 80s and spoke to them. So I feel real good about that. I've spoken in schools all over this nation at every community that I've gone to to run in. And in fact, the only state I have not been in is North Dakota. Running's taken me all over the United States, and I feel proud. I've left an impact in a lot of those communities. So tell me your best story from all those years and all those travels what's your best story oh the one that you pull out when you're you're sitting in the pub with your old friends well it would probably go back to before i came to the united states actually it would go back to the 1975 new zealand men and women's cross-country team that left new zealand because i think it was the greatest bunch of athletes that ever left new zealand and all of us were 18, 19, 20, maybe to mid-20s, 30s years old. And the names in that team in 1975 were Dixon, Quax, Walker, John Shedden, Jack Foster. I mean, on the men's side and on the women's side were Alison Rowe, Lorraine Mahler, Diane Rogers, Heather Thompson, and myself. I think that's the greatest team that ever left New Zealand, and the men won the world championships, and the women were second. And yeah, that's the, great. The great, thing, the great thing about it was is that when we left New Zealand, we were coming out of the New Zealand summer. So whenever we went to World Cross Country, we had to leave New Zealand for about six weeks and go over and run in cross-country races in Europe to adapt. And so that team of those people traveled together for six weeks. We went to Paris and raced in the... French championships, we raced in the German championships, we raced in the Spanish championships, and our administration did not have a lot of money. So it wasn't like we were traveling first class in any way whatsoever. And it got to the point where our managers of the team managed to find a Swedish training camp on the coast of Spain, Costa de Sol, down by Malaga in Spain. And they got us in there for about 10 days. And all of us, as I said, we were all very young, and we got down there and we discovered nightclubs and sangria. <laughs> and our <laughs> managers were beside themselves, and we were, ju- we were just partying. Now you just think of the names of those people, right, the caliber of yeah. that team. So then to get the world championships, we're in Rabat, Morocco. And for that team, because we didn't have any money, for us to get from Spain to Morocco, we went by bus to Gibraltar, from Gibraltar over to Tangiers on a boat, from Tangiers to Rabat on a train, and we're in a hotel, and the managers have run out of money, so we are scavenging in the kitchen for anything that we can get at night once the restaurant's closed, and that team wins the world championship on the men's side, 
<laughs> and second on the women's side, on the women's side. And I just so think I look a, at that. Yeah, that's. I'm, a, that's, I'm just going mean, to agree with you. I'm saying that that's a great story. That would make a great movie. <laughs> yes, absolutely would. And and when you think of where we all now, just think we, where we all ended up because this is 1975. So Walker breaks the world mile record after that. Then he gets the Olympic gold in Montreal in 76. Quex gets the silver in the 5,000 meters. Dixon's fourth. Three of us end up at the Olympics in Montreal in 76, although the women, we didn't do as well. But then you go forward, you've got Alison Rowe and Lorraine Mahler, who end up the great marathoners. Diane Rogers ends up as an Olympic finalist. Heather Matthews ends up as a Commonwealth silver medalist. I end up as a world record holder. Now, who would have thought when that team went away, we were all so young, of where we were all going to go? None of us knew. Uh, something special there, isn't there? It's a moment in time. Uh-huh. And how, yeah. how, how blessed are you to be able to be part of that, huh? Oh, I know. I just look at that, and we all had to get on. We just had to, we trained hard, we partied hard, we were all friends, we're all friends to this day, we all, and none of us knew what was ahead of us, none of us. We were obviously good, but look how, there wasn't one person on that team that didn't end up, I mean, heck, even Jack Foster ended up holding the World Masters Marathon record. Yeah, so here, I'm going to move you towards the exit here, Ann, but uh, now I'm in a much better, happier place having talked to you. I'm going to take my dog out for a run in the woods and uh, and be smiling <laughs> the whole time thinking about that. So, yeah, any parting thoughts or, or uh, advice for our people who might be listening here? Well, as you said about my film, if they just go to my website, they can watch the film. I think it's inspiring. There's current interviews on there and lots of pictures. But I still am grateful that I can run each day. I have not run a race for many, many, many years, and I just don't care. I'm grateful that my feet are still good and I can can still get out outdoors each day and run about four or five miles. And that's what I'm happy doing. As I said, I've, I've got through. I'm, I do it for my mental and physical health. And I just think running is just one of the greatest health care options that we have for ourselves. I'm just grateful I can still do it. Yeah, it's truly a gift, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time and chatting with me today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll we'll touch base again at some point, all right? All right, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Tracks in the snow, a snowy New England morning, tells stories about who walks in our trails. So this week, we had the perfect storm for capturing tracks in the snow. It snowed a bit, then it rained a bit, then it froze. And these layers of precipitation created snow that was perfect for capturing the footprints of all the things that walk and scurry across my trails. The weather, in a sense, created the equivalent conditions to wet cement at the playground, where children press their handprints and scratch their names for future generations to see and perhaps wonder about their stories. As I was out running with Ollie in the woods, we were able to stop and look at the tracks of the creatures that we share the trails with. So join me now as I take you through a journey of discovery. So, 
We're out running in the woods this morning, and it's just about freezing. And there is this wonderful layer of snow that has perfectly captured all the footprints. And there are a lot of tracks captured here. For example, you want to look at these tracks here. You can see the two front paws are close together and the bigger hind paws behind as they hop across the trail from one bramble to the next. And these are, of course, bunnies. Very common. We see them all the time. Lots of bunnies in our woods. And and likewise, we can see the squirrels' tracks here, like, like the rabbit tracks, but smaller with claws and, and a little bit lighter. And we can also see, also see the little tracks of field mice as they wander about their small world. All right, so so let's let's keep going. All right, so here's another common track you'll see all the time. It's a set of heart-shaped hoof prints. Two lobes to the hoof. This would be your white-tailed deer. You can see two or three of them came through here and were pawing at the snow to get the acorns underneath. Interestingly, you can also see the coyote tracks following them. And that's the winter cycle of life. Coyote tracks are like dog prints, except they tend to be more in line and have better defined claws. A bit more purposeful than dogs. <laughs> now, I can tell these are clearly coyote tracks because the little rocket boots he was wearing have the Acme stamp on them, and there's a pile of burnt fur from the explosion. <laughs> All right, moving on. All right, we can we can also see that I'm not the only human out on the trails. And we can see here a good example of the duck-footed pedestrian. Looks like a woman-sized tin boot with some sort of small dog. Look here, how she has to dig in her heels to get traction because the boots have no tread. And she knows these boots are bad in the snow, but they're cute, and they go with her hiking outfit, and you never know when you might run into a heartbroken prince from a small, unheard-of principality who needs to be married by his 30th birthday or he can't take the crown. But the dog looks fairly well-behaved, probably a rescue mix of some sort, so she can lord that over her, her uh, less virtuous rivals at book club. All right. Here's another set of tracks, and you can see it's a guy running from the stride length. But look at how there's no tread pattern, and the snow is thrown up in chunks and ridges. That's a guy wearing yak tracks. Seems to be about a size 12, maybe 5'11", 175 pounds. And you can see by the nuance in the stride here that his kids love him. He's respected at work, and his wife is a bit of a shrew, but he's resigned to work on his relationship with renewed vigor in the new year. So here's a quite an interesting set of tracks. Looks like four people coming up from that roadside turn-in. Two adults and two teenagers, I'd say. The adults are wearing sensible but nondescript generic hiking boots. The teenagers off-the-shelf sneakers that they will grow out of or destroy in a month. And you can tell by the foot strike pattern that it's a family trip. Most likely after an early church service. The mom is anxious and sad. The dad is disconnected and distant. One of the teens slips and slides along, wasting energy, trying to hide the fact that he's hungover from hitting his dad's liquor cabinet. The other is dragging one foot petulantly. You can see as if he never wanted to come today, and why won't anyone listen to him anyhow? And just wait, you'll see, you'll be sorry. 
Oh, and look over here. A nice big flock of wild turkeys came through. I love turkey tracks. First, because they look like little velociraptor footprints. And second, because they're clearly mental birds. They just go in all different directions, like a chaotic cloud. And they cut this aimless swath of dinosaur tracks through the forest. Oh, wait, here's something new. Someone out in snowshoes. There's only three inches of hard snow, so not really snowshoe material. But they got them for Christmas and just had to try them out before hanging them on a hook in the stairwell and forgetting about them for another 12 months. They didn't ask for snowshoes. The wife thought it would be a nice gift. You know, maybe get them off the couch, get a little exercise, because let's face it, you're not getting any younger and you put on a few pounds. And you can see here, as the tracks climb this little hill, that although snowshoeing sounds great in theory, it's actually quite a lot of work, and damn it, doesn't he work enough already? This is taking longer than it should, and he's not going to be able to get some beer before the start of the game. Oh, wait. Wow. What the hell is this? This is something really interesting. It's a very large track. Jeez, probably... Eight inches across the paw? With two-inch claws? That's crazy. This can't be right. We don't have grizzlies in our... Ah! Ah! <laughs> okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have told some great stories out on your run and embraced some change. And here we are at the end of the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-423. I did wrap up my year with the Groton Marathon, my own personal made-up series of races on the last Sunday in December each year. And we got about 30 people to show up and run various distances, had a good time. Five people ended up going the distance running a marathon. And I woke up a bit under the weather, had a bit of a cold, and ended up running the first 12, and then jumping in a support vehicle to chase down some lost marathoners, and then running them in to the finish for a total of about 22-ish miles. So good outing. But I really felt that <laughs> I had let myself get out of shape, especially my core strength. You know, my core strength really went fast this season. And we got good weather. And as far as I know, nobody died. Everybody had fun. I'm starting my strength building again for a spring race. Right now, I am out of qualification, and I don't know if I'm running Boston. And you might say, Chris, that must be a bummer. But honestly, after 22 Bostons, I can take it or leave it. If I do get a number, I will run for charity, and I'll train hard enough to respect it. I'd like to say I won't race it, but you've all heard that enough times by now. <laughs> all right, editor's note, this just in. I just received a waiver bib for Boston, so the streak continues to number 23. I'm still going to try to qualify because it bothers me, like an itch I can't scratch. One of the challenges of being an older athlete is that you can't go all in on as many races. You really have to pick your spots if you want to compete at a high level. And I feel like I don't recover fast enough to perform at that high level in that second and third race. It really beats me up to race a marathon. 
And I've got my eyes on the Tunnel Marathon in Oregon that Eric qualified at last year. Seems like a great event for a fast race, and it's out in June, so I can get plenty of ramp up for my training. I did sign up, volunteer to pace a 405 group at the Martha's Vineyard Marathon in May, but I'm wondering if that might not be biting off more than I can chew, even at that easy pace for a recovery into an A race 30 days later. We'll have to talk to Coach about that. And the last thing I was thinking about after talking with our friend Dave at the Groton Marathon was organizing a rim-to-rim-to-rim run later in the year. So there's another weather window in the canyon. This is the Grand Canyon I'm talking about. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, It's sort of like inside poker here, right? Um, There's another weather window in the canyon after Labor Day. And I had so much fun the last time I ran the canyon. So this time I just do it in two days. Down and out the other side, sleep on the far rim, and then down and back to where you started. And each down and out is less than 20 miles, which is extremely doable. I think it took Teresa and I about eight hours to do Bright Angel to Phantom Ranch and back. Anyhow, let me know if that sounds interesting, and yeah, we can set something up. I've been working with our friend Ollie the Collie, Ollie the Puppy, the monochrome menace, the two-tone terror. I've been working with him on his training. Since I'm in the non-specific base building part of my training, I can take him with me and practice recalls and unleash running behavior. And he's still a maniac, but we're working on it. It teaches me patience, and I am super grateful to have this little maniac as a companion on my journey. My daughter over the holidays got me a subscription to Masterclass. And if you're not familiar with this, it's an app where you can take classes from famous people. So I watched a couple sessions of Malcolm Gladwell, which was interesting, but it, it seems like more of a TED Talk than a class. It's all just talking head video. So it's nice. You get to watch these smart people talking, but it's not really a class. But another one that I'm really getting a lot out of is called Negotiation Skills with Chris Foss. So this is that. He's a master negotiator. And I've I've read Herb Cohen. I've had some basic negotiation skills training from Harvard. I've been in a lot of negotiations. But this guy is not so much about the negotiation as he is about the human interaction around the negotiation. And it's very broadly applicable. Uh, It's very interesting examples of using mirroring and tonality and neuro-linguistic programming to get people into a helpful state. It's it's frankly more of a pickup artist type skill set than negotiation, traditional negotiation skills. So I think you'll like that. All right. I'll let you get on with your life. Thank you for sharing this endurance journey with me. If you need anything, let me know. Reach out and say, hey, yeah, go ahead, reach out. I'm available. We all have a lot to be thankful for in this new decade, this new year. And whatever happens, you'll handle it with grace and kindness. And Ollie and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. 
Like I said last time, I'm going to close out episodes with music for the foreseeable future. This week, my show, my rules. <laughs> this week, we're starting a series. And there's a backstory here that I need to tell you. Not all of it, but some of it. Just some directional backstory. So you all may remember my running buddy, Frank. So Frank is the first guy that I interviewed in episode one, and also in episode 100, and also there was an episode where we talked about his hip resurfacing. Anyhow, I've been running with Frank for over 20 years, and it turns out Frank is a member of a band called The Nays, and they recently released a rock opera about a friend of the band named Brian Sheff. So... There you go. That's all the backstory I'm giving you. So I give you now, over the next few shows, Brian Chef the Rock Opera. And seriously, I'm internally grateful for all the miles and hours Frank has spent with me listening to my stories and creating some stories of our own. And I don't know if there's a way to buy any of this music, but if you're interested, I can find out. Cheers, all. of Caroline, there's a little boy named Brian, and he came to earth one fine day, had a mustache on his face, and he was from the Hebrew race, that little baby boy called Brian Jeff, well the interstate was socked in by an early December storm. Child lay across the cab. She said, Pull over, Joe. This baby's coming, don't you know? There's a nice little truck stop off near Bethlehem. He's Brian Jeff, I'm telling you, Brian Jeff. He's got that one on one with the Lord. Hey, don't you call me no liar. He just could be the Messiah He came to us to save our wretched world 